The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson will now present his lecture, Perfection is Overrated. Good afternoon and welcome. Start off with a lighthearted story of a fellow who wasn't feeling very well. And he and his wife went to the doctor's office to have him checked out. The doctor sees him, spends some time with him, and then asks to have a word with his wife in private. The doctor turns to the fellow's wife and says, Ma'am, your husband is suffering from extreme stress disorder. And he's not doing very well. I'm about to give you a formula that might help. Every single morning, breakfast in bed. When he gets out of bed, I'd like you to have his perfect tie and suit waiting for him, beautifully creased and pressed. When he goes off to work, please send him off with his favorite lunch. Throughout the day, send him seven WhatsApps and three texts telling him how he is God's gift to humanity and you're having a hard time surviving without him. When he gets home from work, there should be mood lighting and wonderful music and his favorite dinner after dinner. You should spend some time perhaps dancing and then be intimate and maybe in this way over time, he'll get better. Anyhow, the woman listens. She takes notes. She leaves the doctor's office. They get into the car. As they're driving home, the husband asks his wife, what did he say? She said, he said, you're not going to make it. <laughs> So what I would like to do in the next few minutes is give you a whirlwind, a whirlwind tour of some of the key ideas in the magnum opus of the Alter Rebbe, the Tanya, and present them by way of five paradigm shifts. And the way in which perhaps we will measure those paradigm shifts is first by spending just a minute or two on the back sheet of these handouts where you have an exercise. There are five exercises. You can write them in with a pen or you can try to focus your thoughts and keep the answers in your mind. The first question is, identify one area of moral or spiritual life which you have struggled with to some degree throughout your entire life. Again, as mentioned, you can write it down or keep the thought in your mind. Question number two. If you could rid yourself of one character flaw or moral vice, which one would it be? I'm not going to ask you all to share your answers, by the way. The third, if it were possible to pay a fee to rid yourself of that vice or that flaw, how much would you be willing to pay to do so? Question four, in spiritual and moral life, in your estimation, does God demand or desire that I, A, ignore the negative aspects of my nature, my character, or my personality, B, control the negative aspects of my nature, my character, or personality, C, uproot the negative aspects of my nature, character, or personality? 
And finally, the fifth question. How do you view the state of spiritual moral struggle in general? A, as a waste of energy that could be better spent elsewhere. B, as a necessary part of spiritual moral life, which we work to eliminate over time. And C, as a sign of spiritual or moral weakness. We will potentially come back to those questions at the very end of the shi'ur, of this lesson. And perhaps we might view things slightly differently to how we viewed them at the outset. On a lighter note, they tell the story of a Zen master visiting New York City. And he goes up to a hot dog vendor and he asks the fellow, can I order a hot dog with everything? The hot dog vendor fixes a hot dog, hands it to the Zen master, who pays with a $20 bill. The vendor puts the bill in the cash box and closes it. The Zen master says, excuse me, but where's my change? The vendor responds, change must come from within. <laughs> in 1797, the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, published his magnum opus, the Tanya. It would completely revolutionize the way in which Jewish spirituality was understood and practiced. The basic premise of the Tanya, which is named the Sefer Shel Benonim, which means the book for the intermediary, is that the state of Tzidkut or Tzadik, which means complete righteousness, is a gift from heaven and is largely unattainable to the average person. And one should therefore devote themselves to the task of striving to be what the Alter Rebbe refers to as the Benoni. Literally speaking, the word Benoni refers to someone who is in between and typically describes someone who is midway between wicked and righteous. The Alter Rebbe's definition, though, is far more nuanced. And if I could take the liberty, I would translate the Alter Rebbe's Benoni as the struggler. The struggler. The difference between a tzaddik and a benoni is that a tzaddik possesses no immoral impulses or inclinations, whereas the benoni perpetually struggles with illicit urges, with negative inclinations, with the darker side of the psyche and personality. According to the Tanya, therefore, the main area of focus for the benoni is not changing his impulses, but controlling them. To him we say, you cannot control who comes knocking on your door. But you can't control who you choose to let in. You cannot help which thoughts pop into your mind. You can only control whether you give those thoughts the space and the attention to develop into desires, passions, words, and then actions. So the Bainani is someone who has learned to master his thoughts, his words, and his actions. And in this respect, we might actually call him a behavioral tzaddik, which means someone who at the behavioral level is identical to the tzaddik. Both are in complete mastery of their faculties of thought, speech, and action, which Hasidus refers to as levushe hanefesh, the garments of the soul, being as they can be removed or changed with relative ease, much as clothing can. But when it comes to their inner world, the tzaddik and benini could not be more different. The tzaddik is devoid of any wickedness. And he identifies exclusively with his divine mission 
his soul, his purpose. Whereas the Benoni is drawn to all sorts of hedonistic temptations and is unrefined and ego-driven on the inside, even though he never allows that vulgarity expression. You know this story on a lighter note they tell about the Israeli driver. He takes his car into the shop to have it fixed. The mechanic tells him, he, specifically his brakes were in disrepair, so the mechanic tells him it's going to cost you 6,000 shekels. The car owner tells the mechanic, forget the brakes, fix the horn. <laughs> and here we come to the first counterintuitive teaching of the Tanya and to paradigm shift number one. Whereas conventional spiritual teachings tend to focus on trying to uproot negativity at the source, at the core, and seek to help us eradicate the root of all negative characteristics, like arrogance, like lust, like envy, judgment, etc. The Tanya posits that effecting change on that level is simply not within our reach, and therefore teaches us to shift our focus and energy towards the effort of not allowing those urges expression. And this in and of itself is very useful information. Let me share why, by way of a military example from history. One April morning in 1943, a sardine fisherman spotted the corpse of a British soldier floating off the coast of Spain. And he set in motion a course of events that would change the course of World War II. Operation Mincemeat, as this operation would be called, was a successful British deception of the Second World War to disguise the 1943 Allied invasion of Sicily. Two members of the British intelligence obtained the body of Glynwer Michael, a tramp who had died from rat poison. And they dressed him up as an officer of the Royal Marines, and they placed personal items on his body, identifying him as a fictitious Captain William Martin. Correspondence between two British generals which suggested that the Allies planned to invade Greece and Sardinia with Sicily as merely a target of a feint was also placed on this man's body. With the approval of Prime Minister Winston Churchill and General Dwight Eisenhower, the plan began by transporting this body to the southern coast of Spain by submarine and then releasing it close to the shore, where, as mentioned, it was picked up the following morning by a Spanish fisherman. The neutral Spanish government shared copies of the documents with the German military intelligence organization before returning those originals back to the British. Forensic examination showed that they had been read by the Germans and messages of the Germans that were, decepted, were intercepted showed that the Germans fell for this ruse. Reinforcements were shifted to Greece and Sardinia before and during the invasion of Sicily, but Sicily received none at all. Operation Mincemeat fooled no less than Hitler, Yemach German troops were deployed to the wrong place. Thousands of British and Canadian and American lives were saved. Mussolini was deposed. And the course of World War II was changed. This is a fascinating example of how important it is to know exactly who and where your real enemy is. Otherwise, you can end up placing the bulk of your fighting force in the wrong place, leaving the real battleground exposed and your forces vulnerable. On a lighter note, 
Recently, a routine police patrol was parked outside a bar in the outback of Australia. After the last call, the officer noticed a man leaving the bar so apparently intoxicated he could barely walk. The man stumbles around the parking lot for a few minutes and the officer is quietly observing after what seemed like an eternity during which he tried his keys on five different cars, the man finally managed to find his car and he stumbles into it. He sat there for a few minutes as a number of the patrons left the bar and drove off. Finally, he starts the car, switches on the wipers, then switches them off. It was a fine, dry summer night, by the way. He flicked the blinkers on and off a couple of times. He honks the horn, and then he switches on the lights. He removes, he moves the vehicle forward a few inches, and then he reverses a little, and then he remains still for a few more minutes as some of the other patrons in their vehicles take off. At last, when his was the only car left in the parking lot, he pulled out and he slowly drove down the road. The police officer, having waited very patiently all this time, now started up his patrol car. He put on his flashing lights and promptly pulls the man over and administers a breathalyzer test. To his amazement, the breathalyzer indicated no evidence that the man had consumed any alcohol at all. Dumbfounded, the officer says to the fellow, I'll have to take you down to the station because apparently the breathalyzer is broken. I doubt it, responds this man with pride. You see, tonight, I'm the designated decoy. <laughs> Spiritually and morally speaking, the same holds true. The default philosophical position many of us hold is that the real battleground for spiritual and moral self-mastery is below ground, so to speak, at the level of personality and psyche. And the goal we set for ourselves is nothing less than the complete eradication of our negative impulses over time. This one of the main revelations of the Tanya is that if we've signed up for impulse correction rather than impulse control, we're fighting the wrong battle and setting ourselves up for disaster. Sooner or later, we're going to realize that while we might be able to hold our demons at bay temporarily, they always find a way of resurfacing. And often, just when we think we've finally kicked certain habits and outgrown our youthful vices, they reemerge with renewed vigor and renewed venom. And what happens in those moments of reawakened temptation and weakness? During those flashes of blinding desire, we are exposed to the depressing fact that we never really changed at the core despite all of our efforts thus far. In those moments of clarity, we recognize reluctantly that our unhealthy passions and addictions simply lay dormant for a time, but were there all along, ready to reemerge given certain triggers and circumstances. And it's then that feelings of despair can set in. In those moments, we can begin to give up on ever really achieving our spiritual goals. We tell ourselves, my character flaws are simply part of who I am. Real change is not realistic. It's not possible. It's naive. It's childish. It's too youthful to think that I could really make a change. I will never rid myself of impatience or envy. I will never eradicate arrogance and selfishness. And from there, it's only a short mental distance to making peace with our vices, seeing them as being here to stay. You know the joke told about the fellow who enters a bar. He orders a drink. The bartender gives him a drink. He downs a shot. 
He takes the shot glass and he throws it directly at the bartender. It misses by an inch and it smashes into a bunch of pieces. And he does the same thing again and again until the bartender tells him, sir, you need help. You need to find yourself a therapist. You need to deal with these unresolved anger issues. And the guy says, okay, he goes off. Six months later, he's back. Orders a drink, takes the empty shot glass, and does exactly the same thing. Throws it directly at the bartender. It misses, it smashes, and this happens again and again until finally the bartender says, sir, I thought I told you, you need help. You need to find yourself a shrink. Guy says, I took your advice six months ago. I've been seeing a therapist. And now I'm happy to say that I'm no longer ashamed of my issues. <laughs> the problem, teaches the Alter Rebbe, is that our goals were based on a mistaken premise. We were simply fighting the wrong war. The real enemy and battleground for the average human being is the expression rather than the essence of negative inclinations. There's a moving story told about a great Hasidic master named Rabbi Mordechai of Niezich in the Ukraine. And he longed for a talis katan that was made from a piece of wool from Eretz Yisrael, from the Holy Land. When he finally procured the wool, he commissioned one of his students to fashion a talis katan made from this holy wool. But unfortunately, in cutting out the opening, the young man folded the cloth one time too many resulting not in one, but two holes. With trepidation, he informed Rav Mordechai that he had ruined the talis katan that Rav Mordechai had longed for for so long. Rav Mordechai calmly told him, don't fret. He says, but I ruined your talis katan. It isn't ruined, replied Rabbi Mordechai. You see, one hole is for Mordechai to put his head through, and the other is a test to see if Mordechai will lose his temper. According to the Tanya, our objective must be to gain mastery, not over the impulse to anger and judgment itself, but over the manifestation, the expression of those impulses in thought, in speech, and in action. As mentioned earlier, we may not be able to control who comes knocking at our door, but we are definitely always able to control who it is we let in. The Talmud put it beautifully when it said, it's not the mouse that should be held accountable for stealing food in the home, but the hole that allowed the mouse in. Reminds me of one of my favorite jokes about the Ramat Ganzu, thrilled about the recent acquisition of a kangaroo. They'd never had a kangaroo before, so they had to set up a brand new enclosure. Unfortunately, the kangaroo kept getting out. Knowing that he could hop very high, the zoo officials put up a 10-foot fence. Lo and behold, he was out the next morning, sauntering about, having a dandy old time. A 20-foot fence was put up. Again, he gets out. When the fence was 40 feet high, a camel in the next enclosure asks the kangaroo, how high do you think they'll go? The kangaroo said, maybe 1,000 feet, unless somebody locks the gate at night. <laughs> now, on the one hand, this information is liberating. You mean to say that the objective of spiritual life and warfare is not to change the negative aspects of my personality and nature, but simply to control them? The goal suddenly seems within reach. On the other hand, the idea that my struggle for righteousness will be perpetual 
And as long as I live, I will need to always be vigilant and constantly on guard. That's deeply frustrating. That's unsettling. You can only imagine the constant state of inner tension in which the Benoni lives. Always vigilant, closely regulating and controlling his thoughts, his words, his actions to make sure they're always in line with the divine will. The Benoni can never let go of the reins even for a moment. He can never set his life to existential or spiritual cruise control. Since at any given moment he might encounter stimuli, thoughts, sounds, conversations, scents, which might tempt him into reacting in thought, word, or deed in ways that are contrary to the Torah. Which brings me to what, to my mind, make up the three most radical words in all of the Tanya. They communicate, to my mind, one of the most revolutionary religious teachings I have ever come across. Let me provide you with the background. The Alter Rebbe is in the middle of describing the life frustrations of the Benoni in his day-to-day life, and the fact that the Benoni sees himself as constantly treading water, so to speak, on a spiritual treadmill of sorts. A lot of motion, but no progress at all. And the Alter Rebbe addresses himself to this Benoni, who feels like he's getting nowhere, and he says in chapter 27 of Tanya, text 1, Therefore, one should not feel depressed or troubled at heart, even if you are to be engaged in this battle every day of your life. Why? And here we come to paradigm shift number two. Key, because, and here come those three breathtaking, mind-blowing words. Ulai lakach nivra. Perhaps for this, you were created in order to struggle. Ulai lekach nivra. Meaning, perhaps your soul entered this world for the sole purpose of struggling each day to master the base urges and impulses with which you were created. Perhaps your mission in this world itself is to struggle with imperfection rather than to aspire or attain perfection. Put somewhat more boldly, perhaps God wants you to remain imperfect and to constantly struggle with your imperfections. A contemporary Hasidic thinker put it this way, text three. Some think life is all about doing good and keeping away from evil. To them, struggle has no purpose of its own. To have struggled is to have failed. Success, they imagine, is a sweet candy with no trace of bitterness. They are wrong. They are tragically wrong. Because struggle is an opportunity to reach the ultimate when darkness itself becomes light. In the midst of struggle, an inner light is awakened, light profound enough to overwhelm darkness, encasing it and winning it over. Amazingly, the Hebrew word for struggle is avak. And you may not know this, but it is etymologically linked, etymologically linked to the Hebrew word for flame, or torch, avuka, because there is a unique light within each one of us that can only be activated through adversity and struggle. On a lighter note, they tell the story about a wealthy man who built a beautiful mansion, and he wanted to throw a party for all of the townspeople, including Leroy, 
the local Shlomazel. Everyone shows up really excited and they're walking around and ooing and eyeing and then eventually they go out to the outdoors space, beautiful bar set up, drinks, music, lighting. And at some point, the owner of the home quiets everyone and he says, I'd like to draw your attention to the beautiful pool that I built. And they all look inside. And he says, inside this pool, there is a 10-foot man-eating alligator. And he said, I'd like to pose the following challenge. Any one of you who should jump into the pool and overcome this alligator and survive, I'm willing to give him a million dollars. The words didn't even finish coming out of his mouth when they hear a big splash. And who is in the pool? Leroy, the Shlomazel. And he's literally fighting for his life. And there's chaos, pandemonium, all hell breaks loose. Ten minutes later, the lifeless body of that alligator floats to the top, and Leroy begins to climb out of the pool completely drained, completely exhausted. He wobbles up, and the master of the home tells him, Leroy, I reckon I owe you a million bucks? And Leroy says, I'm not interested in a million dollars. He says, well, then maybe the latest Porsche or some stock options. He says, not interested. What about the latest Rolex? Not interested at all. He says, what are you interested in then? He said, I want the name of the fool who threw me into the pool. (laughs) Incidentally, this idea relates to a story told in the book of Genesis about a mysterious encounter our forefather Jacob has with a spiritual being who informs him that his name will be changed by God from Yaakov to Yisrael, from Jacob to Israel. Let's look at text 3. Here the verse shares with us the reason for this name change and the depth and background and meaning of Jacob's new name Yisrael. Because because you have striven according to one of the Mirfarshim, one of the Rishonim, because you have wrestled with God and with man and you have prevailed. Now, What's amazing about the etymology of the name Yisrael is that it draws heavily on the word sarisa, which means to strive or to struggle, as opposed to the word vatuchal, which means to overcome, to vanquish, to emerge victorious. And this is, of course, very curious, because in seeking to commemorate this historic and this awesome moment of victory, why is it that Hashem chose a name that recalls moments of trauma, uncertainty, and vulnerability. Why name his children forever after the strugglers if he could have named them the victors? But herein lies that counterintuitive teaching of Tanya, which is that in the Jewish tradition, perfection, spiritual and otherwise, sainthood, these are not the ultimate ideals towards which we aspire. Perhaps for this reason, God chose to memorialize this epic wrestling match between Yaakov and the guardian angel of Esav, which represent the eternal struggle between good and evil by highlighting the struggle rather than the victory to teach us that the struggle is not just a necessary part of the journey, it can be the destination itself. And this can help us see our struggles not as a means to an end, but an end in themselves. On a lighter note, I'm reminded of the time that Arik Sharon, former Prime Minister of Israel, came over to the States to visit President Bush, 
who took him for a beautiful drive across his sprawling Texas estate. In an attempt to impress Sharon with the vastness of his property, Bush says, Arik, you know, I can get in my car in the morning and drive all day and still not make it to the other side of my estate by day's end. To which Sharon responded, ah, I also used to have a car like that. <laughs> and this brings me to paradigm shift number three. Let's look at text four. The Talmud teaches, he who is spiritually greater than his fellow man, his yetzer, his animalistic drive and inclination is greater, stronger, more powerful than his fellows. Let me tell you the story that introduces this sentiment. Abaye, one of the great Talmudic sages, once heard a man say to a certain woman, let us rise early and go on the road. Upon hearing this, Abaye said to himself, I will go and accompany them and prevent them from violating the prohibition that they certainly intend to violate. He went after them for a distance of three parsa in a marsh among the reeds while they walked on the road and they did not engage in any wrongful activity. When they were taking leave of each other, he heard that they were saying, we traveled a long distance together and the company was very pleasant. Abayah said, in that situation, if instead of that man, it had been the one whom I despise, this is a euphemism for himself in that moment. He said, he would not have been able to restrain himself from sinning. After becoming aware of so great a shortcoming, he went and leaned against the doorpost, thinking and feeling terrible regret. A certain elder came to him in that moment and taught him, anyone who is greater than his friend his evil inclination is greater too. Therefore, Abaye should not feel regret, as his realization is a consequence of actually not vice, but virtue. Not weakness, but strength. Text 5. King Solomon put it this way in Proverbs. Seven times do the righteous fall and rise. In other words, righteousness is described and defined by how hard we struggle rather than by how often we succeed. In the secular world, success is defined by the outcome, by the result, by the bottom line, by how many deals you close, by how many zeros you have in your bank account. I'll never forget a beautiful conversation I overheard of a wonderful Hasidic Jew coming over from the old world, and he said that there's one <coughs> phrase that really deeply bothers him in this country. And that is the question of how much is he worth? Associating, of course, net worth with self-worth. But that's the way of the world. In the world of material, it's the result, it's the outcome. In the spiritual world, however, success is defined not by how much you take out, but by how much you put in. In the moving words of the 18th century sage and mystic, the holy Reb Zusha in the town of Anapoli, while on his deathbed, he said, and I quote, when I appear before the heavenly court, they won't ask me, why weren't you like Moses, like Moshe Rabbeinu? They will ask, why weren't you all that Zusha could have been? Let's look at text six, put succinctly in scripture. It says, Adam la'amol, which means man was created in order to toil. Meaning, 
This statement, which essentially is mankind's personal mission statement, is worded in terms of investment rather than return. Communicating that from the divine point of view, we were put on this earth in order to toil rather than triumph. Which brings me to another counterintuitive teaching in Hasidus, and this is the fourth paradigm shift. Not only is there something noble or holy about wrestling with demons, there is something spiritually advantageous in struggling with darkness over basking in light. The Talmud famously puts it this way, text 7, B'makam shabal teshuva ameid, ein tzadikim gemurim yechalim la'amod. Which means, where the penitent, the returnee, the person who tasted sin and has chosen a different life, where they stand, spiritually speaking, the complete tzaddik, the perfect saint, cannot stand, cannot reach. Meaning, the way I would put it, God is closer to the sincere and struggling penitent than he is to the native and effortless tzaddik. While the saint may reach higher, the struggler reaches deeper. This idea is radical because it suggests that not only is the struggler tolerated in Judaism, he is actually celebrated to some extent above and beyond the saint. Let's look at the Zohar, text 8. Thereby, through the struggle with evil, God's glory rises above all more than by any other praise. And this ascent is greater than all else. I'm reminded of a beautiful story told by the Lubavitch Rebbe at a Shavuos Fabrengen about a Jew named David. David was a simple, beautiful, pure, and innocent Jew. He wasn't very complicated. One would even say he wasn't necessarily spiritually sophisticated. But he had once sat in on a shiur, a lesson in which the rabbi spoke about the importance, the value of doing a mitzvah behidur, doing a Jewish practice with an extra measure of enthusiasm and passion. And so he thought to himself, it would be my dream, this coming Sukkot, to procure the most beautiful etrog available. But he was a poor man. He had no way of achieving this goal, this dream. And so he decided to start day by day. And he took home of his earnings every day. And he took off one or two kopecks, very small amount. He put it aside. And he hoped that over time this would accumulate and it would be a significant, a meaningful sum with which he can buy a beautiful etro. The coming Sukkot arrives and he goes to the sukkah shop, to the etro vendor. And the etro vendor gives him one look, sizes him up, as etro vendors can do. And he sees that this man belongs in the discounted section of etrogim. And yet the man says, show me to the most expensive etrogim you have. And he tries to put him off and this, that, but he sees the man is insistent, and so he takes him to the most beautiful section, and he shows him the most beautiful etrog. And the man says, how much is it? He says, it's this and this, an exorbitant amount of money. Exactly the amount that David had managed to save up throughout the course of that year. He takes out his sack filled with these kopecks, and he begins to count it out. The vendor is shocked, pleasantly surprised, hands him the etrog, he says, Mazel tov and enjoy. David is ecstatic. He doesn't walk home that day. He dances home that day. He's radiating joy. So much so 
that when his wife sees him coming through the door, she's very suspicious. <laughs> Why are you so happy today? Anyhow, he tried to get around it, this, that, and the other, until eventually he caved and he told her what he had done over the course of the year. You know what her reaction was? She was very, very upset. Because they were a poor family. And she argued to him. She says, you know, you could have used that savings to invest in something. Maybe put it aside for the wedding fund of our children. Or maybe for a holiday. Or the extra suit that we want to get our children, etc. And here you go ahead and you spend it on some spiritual indulgence. And she was so angry. She was so mad. Then in the heat of the moment, she took the echo. And she bit off the pitom, rendering it immediately unfit for use. Do you know how David reacted? He turned his eyes heavenward and he said, apparently David wasn't worthy of such a beautiful etrog. But that's not the end of the story. There's a postscript that accompanies this story which is absolutely mind-blowing. It is said that God did not derive such spiritual pleasure from that act as he had since the time when Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. In other words, thousands of years have passed. A tremendous amount of good deeds have been performed in this world. But it was this one, this humble act of restraint, of anger management in modern language, that touched the secret cord that pleased the Lord, so to speak. A story. In a private audience with the Rebbe, a man once expressed his deep frustration about the struggle he had with mitzvah observance. He said, Rebbe, I find that no matter how many mitzvot I perform, I remain unchanged and I continue to sin. I feel like I'm wasting my time and my energy and there's no point in trying any further. The Rebbe asked him the following question. Why is it that a masterful painting sells for far more than a winning, an award-winning photograph? Incidentally, I looked this up not long ago. The most expensive photograph sold for, does anybody know? At least as of some time ago, $4.4 million. Do you know what the most expensive painting sold for? $450 million. I think it's probably more than that by now. This was some time ago. And one would expect the opposite to be true, the Rebbe said. A photograph captures reality much more accurately than does a painting, which is a good imitation at best. Well, says the man, even when a good photographer takes a picture, it only takes a few seconds of relatively little effort. All you have to do is press down one button, takes a few seconds, and it's done. He says, the painter, on the other hand, puts months and years of effort, of toil, of sweat, of blood into a painting. He invests his soul into his work. Excellent, says the Rebbe. That is precisely the point. The heavenly angels were created without negative impulses or desires, and their spirit of purity reflects the divine with an accuracy unlike that of any other being. Like a photograph, they are the closest and most perfect depiction of the divine reality. 
But because they lack the urge of sin, they have no challenges and they never struggle. The human being, however, was created with negative inclinations, which he must battle constantly. And his strenuous service, although imperfect in appearance, is invaluable in the eyes of Hashem. Which brings me to the fifth and final paradigm shift. There is something noble and holy, not only in struggle, but in brokenness and in incompletion. You do know the difference between the English word complete and finished, correct? This is one definition that I heard. If you marry the right person, you're complete. And if you marry the wrong person... (laughs) In the book of Exodus, the Torah tells us of how following the revelation at Sinai, God carves out two tablets, engraves the Ten Commandments, and then he presents them to Moshe on Har Sinai. When Moses descends the mountain, however, he observes that the Israelites had created a golden calf as an idol. Seeing this, we all know the story. Moses takes these tablets, he throws them to the ground, he smashes them into pieces. After a powerful negotiation, confrontation with God, Moshe persuades God, so to speak, to forgive the Jewish people for their betrayal. Acting on God's instructions, Moshe then carves out a second pair of tablets to replace the now broken first ones. When the ark is built and placed inside the holiest chamber in the tabernacle, not one, but both sets of those tablets were placed therein. Of course, the new, the whole, the perfected ones, as well as the fragmented and broken pieces of the smashed tablets. But why, why would the pieces of the broken tablets be placed into the Holy of Holies? Weren't they a constant reminder of the greatest moral failing of the Jewish people as a whole? Why not just disregard them or deposit them in a safe place? Or bury them as we do with old items of spiritual value? This comes to teach that God is not only to be found in that which is complete, wholesome, perfect as embodied by the first set of commandments which were crafted and designed by an infinite God but can be found as well in the broken, in the fragmented, in the imperfect, embodied by the shattered pieces of those tablets. Spiritually speaking, the broken pieces represent our flings with personal golden calves that we create and that we worship. It captures the pain that accompanies every spiritual journey when we recognize that we will never fully eliminate the tension and the pull of hedonism and self-absorption. They represent the frustration that we experience when we encounter our limitations and reflect on our broken promises, our resolutions, and our wasted time, talent, and potential. Emotionally speaking, the broken pieces represent the trauma and pain that comes with being rejected, with being let down not having been loved unconditionally, and consequentially, the difficulty many of us have loving and accepting ourselves and our loved ones for the people that we are, rather than the people that we ought to be. Circumstantially, the broken pieces represent failed marriages, failed careers, or a family life fraught with dysfunction, or the illness or loss of a dear one with whom we thought we would grow old. 
They represent the unfair and undeserved abuse and cruelty some people are made to suffer at the hands of others for no reason other than fate bringing them into contact with their abusers. They represent fortunes lost, poor choices made, lifelong reputations tarnished, and shattered dreams and visions of our lives nurtured since we were children. Broken pieces represent the agony brought on by the realization and resignation that the romanticized image we held of a parent, of a sibling, of a spouse, a child, and yes, even ourselves, is not consistent with the flawed, insecure, and vulnerable people that they or we truly are. And here we come to the essence of Judaism and the revolutionary teachings of Hasidism based on the Midrash, which says in text 10, God desired a dwelling place in the lower realms, in the darker places, as it were, of the universe and existence. God can be found in the darkest recesses of our soul and psyche and in the existential angst and tug of war between our godly and animal souls. I find it deeply moving that Jewish people say a prayer not, over, not only over light during the Havdalah ceremony, but over darkness as well. Some of you will know this prayer. It's part of the evening service. Which means, thank you, God, for bringing darkness into the world as well as light. Every night, as the black cloak of evening descends on the world, we recite these words. Thank you, God Almighty, for creating darkness. Darkness, too, is divine and sacred. And the same is true for that which is broken. One of the Hasidic masters put it this way. He said, there is nothing as whole as a broken heart. It reminds me of a beautiful story told about the holy Balshemto, who had a very trusted disciple named Rebzev Kitsis. And one year, he asked Rebzev if he would honor the congregation by blowing the shofar for the congregation. And Rebzev was very humbled, but also very anxious because he wanted to get it right. And so he went about for months and months and he studied all of the Kabbalistic intonations and meditations and nuanced esoteric meanings and symbolisms to the blowing of the shofar, of which there are many. And he wrote down bullet points. Finally, the day comes, Rosh Hashanah morning. He's standing up there on the dais, on the bima. Hundreds are gathered. He reaches into his pocket to take out that note all of those abbreviated bullet points for his Kabbalistic meditations, months and months of work, wasn't there. Somehow he'd misplaced it. And he was broken. He was shattered. And he decided to go on, of course, left with no choice, and he sounded the chauffeur with a truly broken heart. He felt like a failure. And after Yom Tov, the Bashem Tov asked to see him. And he said to him, tell me, exactly what you were thinking when you booed the show for this year. And he felt like, oh, this is the moment of truth. I'm exposed. No one else knew, but the Baal Shem Tov sees things people don't see. And he told the Baal Shem Tov what had happened. The Baal Shem Tov said, that was the most extraordinary show for blowing I've ever heard. He said, but Reb, how could this be? Says the Baal Shem Tov, in the king's palace. There are many gates, there are many doors to many chambers. 
He says, the palace keepers have great rings holding many keys, each of which opens a different door, one of health, one of success, one of nachas, etc. But there is one master key that fits all of those locks, that opens all of those doors. The kavanot, those Kabbalistic intentions, were each representative of one key to one particular door or portal. But there is the master key that opens up the innermost chambers of the divine palace. And that master key is a broken heart. Let me conclude with the moving words of a Jewish composer, Leonard Cohen. In his song anthem, he wrote, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Thank you. Just a little final word. At some point, I'd like to invite you to revisit the exercise we began with and see whether your answers and your attitudes may differ even slightly from our whirlwind tour of some of the key ideas in the Tanya, which can be summarized in the following five mantras. Number one, the struggle is real and it's here to stay. B, know thy enemy. You cannot control who comes knocking at your door. You could control who you let in. The next teaching is you are perfectly imperfect. That's not only how, but why you were created. The struggle is the destination. The next, in spiritual terms, success is defined not by how much you take out, but by how much you put in, so give it your all. The next is God is closer to the struggler than the saint in certain ways as described. Don't just tolerate your struggles. Embrace them as a means of drawing closer to Hashem. And finally, the next time you feel broken, remember, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.